Hello everyone. Welcome to the Fintech Dialogues, a unique podcast where we talk to industry leaders who have been through the journey of creating and transforming financial technology experiences. I'm your co-host Ankur and I'm Abhinav. In each episode, we shall be discussing trends, ideas, innovation and their implementation challenges. Come join us as we candidly discuss with the experts about their tactics, strategies and learnings. Our today's guest is an entrepreneur who started his microfinance journey with a small charity lending of $10,000 and he used technology to scale the portfolio to USD 150 million. He is someone who has been passionately working for financial inclusion and financial literacy in the Eastern European country of Georgia since last 26 27 years. Mr. Archil, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you Abhinav a great pleasure to to be part of this uh, excellent podcast series thank you okay so Archil before we start interacting with you let me give our listeners a, a brief introduction of Crystal and uh, the inspirational journey that you had so yeah so Crystal yeah tell us about it yeah, yeah. Uh, Crystal started in uh, actually a long time ago in 1998 uh, uh we as a group of uh, displaced people uh, in the western georgia decided to uh, set it up uh, with the help of uh, that time uh, uh, funding partners donors and uh, since then we embarked on this uh, very interesting journey and uh, we've uh, got crystal now as a largest non-banking financial institution uh, which is actually about to great get a, li- a micro banking license next year um and we are serving um, more than 120,000 customers across uh, Georgia. Uh, we we've started as a group of internally displaced people uh, in a in a western um, city of Georgia called Kutaisi. Uh and uh, since then uh, Crystal uh, became now Georgia's largest non-banking financial institution. Uh we're about to become a microbank. Uh, this is something we plan for next year. uh and today crystal is serving more than 120,000 customers mainly micro and small entrepreneurs and farmers uh and um we uh we are uh becoming uh, one of the major providers uh, when it comes to loans insurance products and other non-financial services to micro and small enterprises uh, in georgia i should tell us how how the small small charity you know usually usually people start their uh, the professional journey uh to with a business or a work where they can make money or you know gain some experience but you started your professional journey with by founding a non-profit organization that is very strange tell us more about it uh you know uh, if you look at that time ecosystem which we can't even call ecosystem uh there was no such a notion as a startup or uh, there were no angel investors or any type of uh, you know any sort of investors which would uh, help business development so the only um, funding source uh, at that time was a donor institutions donor agencies uh united states european union and other countries actually helped georgia at that post conflict phase so that was a very difficult time very rough time for 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 the country for the society uh and um, our main goal was to support our uh members of our community internally displaced people 
uh, after the war uh, in Abkhazia. So we started with uh, not-for-profit uh, programs and we started uh, helping children. Uh, we, we also worked with the communities. But very quickly we realized that the most important thing was livelihoods and job creation. And that's how we really, uh, you know, uh, appeared on that scene. And we started with a business training where we conducted uh, basic business training for thousands of IDPs. And then, you know, naturally our, our partners said, would, would we try our forces in providing financial services? Which we said, yes, of course. And uh, that's uh, how, how this idea came about. So um, a microfinance program was part of that uh, NGO, but very soon we realized that this is going to be a, 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 you know important business and we need to uh, you know somehow split it. And in a couple of years we spin, spun it off. Uh, uh, and since then you know uh, we created the Crystal Fund, a specialized foundation, which was then later became what it is today, uh, microfinance organization Crystal. Mm -hmm. Okay, tell us about your time at Lancaster University and how it helped you to shape the, the non-profit charity and the afterwards a licensed mutual fund organization later. Tell us about yeah. your time in UK there, yeah. Yeah, that was a very nice part uh, of my uh, young, young uh, years uh, because uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, to get uh, achieving scholarship from the UK uh, uh, Foreign Commonwealth Office. It was a name that time. Uh, and uh, I, I, I went to the UK for, for one year to, to complete my uh, full-time MBA program in Lancaster, which is a wonderful school. Um, it, it was quite difficult, actually, to leave uh, uh, the company uh, and, you know, go, go, go for, for, for such a journey. Uh, but I think that was really made a lot of good to, to Crystal and to myself, obviously, uh, because of uh, very nice, uh, uh, high, high, high academic, uh, high quality academic environment I, I discovered myself. Lancaster is a great school because they teach management uh, uh, in a very scientific way. Really, they, they teach and they, you know, they, they help you to build skills uh, of thinking like a manager. And I think that's really a distinct part of uh, Lancaster MBA, and uh, I'm I'm still in touch with the school and and a big big sort of proponent of Lancaster. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so uh, after that, you started the uh, the Crystal Fund, and you structured it in a small uh, small microfinance uh, project. By 2010, uh, you you launched a project reaching Georgia rural poor through mobile remittances that aims at the enhancing of uh, self-reliance of poor households through improved financial literacy and access to financial services. In 2010, you know, technology was very different from what it is today. Tell us about, uh, tell us about, uh, you know, your realization when you, how do you realize that this is time to actually invest into technology and, you know, how you figured out the vendors, how you figured out what is good and what is bad for the country, because it must have been a pioneering move in those times. Yeah, that was very interesting time, and I was fascinated by uh, what was going on in the financial inclusion uh, area. Not, not much, actually, but there was a very vivid story of M-Pesa in Kenya, we all remember. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I was following these stories, and really I was fascinated by, by, by 
possibilities which uh, technology can bring. Um, I remember very well one one of the memories of that time, which made made an uh, an impression on me. Uh, it was one of the you know programs by SIGAP, uh, consultative group to assist the poorest, which is still very active in, in this mm-hmm. in this uh, uh, domain. So one of the speakers, I don't remember the name, said that uh, imagine um, sort of the the dream of all finance service providers is to have as good distribution as coca-cola uh, so the idea of you know uh, financial services being available uh, as as much as coca coca-cola can you know offer their, their their sort of product to customers was was uh, was a dream really uh, after several years we see that we have a much better distribution distribution network than coca-cola now uh, and uh, that was really a greatest inspiration so uh, I started uh, very much, you know, learning about these uh, early days. Uh, technology was very different. You are right. Uh, you know, mobile communication industry was very closed and very difficult to access. Uh, imagine that time to have a contract on uh, uh, SMS. Uh, uh, let's say service uh, would would require a substantial lobbying and work with these huge companies. Uh, who were very close at that time. Uh, but this is how we started. And uh, uh, our efforts have been aided by uh, by International Fund for Agriculture Development, IFAD, which provided us this uh, early grant uh, to uh, innovate in this domain. We, we, we used that project not only to, uh, you know, reach out to technology providers, uh, but also to start establishing a, a, a regulation around payment systems in Georgia. Uh, obviously, there was nothing before that, and we hosted a first series of workshops, bringing a regulator and uh, you know legislators, and started you know uh, speaking about the need for for the law. So after several years, we have a very advanced law. Uh, a, a regulator which um, you know which is very transparent very effective fulfills the function uh, at highest possible level and a lot of technological innovation in georgia uh, which which is obviously uh, a very nice thing to see hmm. uh, it must have been very difficult to actually pioneer something in a regulated industry where you're doing something where there's no regulation Yes, that's correct. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's difficult because uh, you, you you know um, you cannot predict what will come. So uh, you know any technological development, especially at that time, which was much co- much more costly, uh, required investment. So we didn't want to you know fi- fi- find ourselves uh, in a position of having invested a lot of money and then something wouldn't work because of the regulatory barrier. That's why we needed uh, clear, uh, you know, uh, predictable regulatory environment for for anything to be started, and that's why our efforts were in really in three directions. You know, ensure that there is a reg- predictable regulation. Uh, number two was, you know, identify appropriate technology, but number three was uh, learn more about the customer group and really understand what the need was. And and that time our uh, attention was paid to Georgian migrants living in uh, Greece and Italy in these specific countries. There are a lot of women uh, who left Georgia for economic reasons and started uh, uh, 
you know, working uh, as a service workers, essentially, especially in those two countries. And uh, to reach out and help them to, you know, first of all, facilitate remittances, but the big idea was really to help them to become financially included uh, and also provide them with services and advice to uh, become more economically resilient. Um, but everything uh, would, should have started with, with something. And this first step was very much a payment, a remittances. And that's how we started the project. And we learned a lot. Uh, we've done a lot of good things from that project. And that project then gave a start to, uh, to a new institution, to new, to new company, which is called Kerketi, which is still active and, uh, and is on the you know, payment uh, uh, stage. Uh, and I hope it will, it will, you know, uh, make a, a lot of interesting developments in the future. Hmm. So in 2013, after that, uh, you started a mobile financial consultancy with networks and mobile money industry expert, um, you know, and expertise in technology and operations. Uh, you must be interacting with lots of industry players and the regulators uh, at the same time. Tell us about the top three challenges a typical organization faces while they're trying to digitally deliver financial services. What are the top three challenges one, one see? It depends which organization we speak about. If we speak about the traditional, uh, like incumbent uh, financial institution like Crystal, and there are a lot of such institutions, what we call microfinance organizations, hmm. uh, challenges are different. You know, if you have a large bank, there are different challenges. Um, and I guess, you know, uh, uh, every type of institution have their own challenges. So if you look at type of traditional players, which, uh, which used to be in a, in a lending business, uh, predominantly cash-based, you know, with regional out outreach, um, the problem is, is really to manage that change, which is required because uh, technology requires, uh, you know, substantial change at every level of organization. Uh, not, on, not only, you know, sort of technology itself and, and people who are in charge of uh, developing, maintaining this technology, but also the thinking of other important teams uh, and also governance of the institution. The biggest challenge is really to, to move from, uh, from the usual ways of doing things to new ways of doing things. And there are a lot of... Uh, there is a lot of uh, resistance to change. Obviously, people who are successful in doing their business in the way they, they used to, it's very hard to persuade them to, to change it until it is successful, right? So these are not simple problems. And I think these are the most important and biggest challenges uh, anyone have to keep in mind. Sure. Sure, that uh, is I'll tell you, maybe, maybe should, I should I sort of do a second and third, maybe, yeah? Um, yeah. yeah, so the second challenge is, I think, uh, I think a skill set uh, of people who are in charge of delivering it. Um, you know, Georgia, uh, as, as well as much as well as many uh, Eastern European countries, uh, uh, has a problem of, uh, of uh, you know, um, you know. A, a, deficit for technology talent essentially hmm. this became even more uh, apparent after covid when there's a mass, massive digitalization going on across many industries right 
So that was the biggest problem. Uh, we didn't have a hist sort of uh, historically strong technology engineering schools. Uh, Georgia as an economy was oriented on, on, on other industries such as you know, tourism and uh, uh, agriculture, a little bit of in, uh, manufacturing, but not, not really in the sort of uh, engineering, uh, international information technology uh, thing, sort of domain. Um, in contrast from countries like Ukraine or Belarus, even Moldova in our neighborhood, who had much stronger uh, military industrial complex with a lot of engineers and, you know, um, science-based uh, and technology-based uh, professions. So that was probably the biggest problem for Georgia. We, we, we found it hard to, uh, to, to, to get together a team which would, uh, you know, uh, undertake that digital transformation. Uh, but I mean, this is a challenge and we are entrepreneurs, we need to find ways and uh, this isn't always, always uh, possible, but it's not easy. Yeah, so the, the, the skill set problem that you're talking about is a problem that we face uh, with many organizations and they, they always have to ask the same question, you know, whenever we are trying for a, for a technology change, should we hire somebody and create this technology in-house or should we, you know, look for a vendor who works like a partner? So this, this is a question that all the uh, institutions have to answer. So what should be a good approach in that sense? What, what, should, what should one one consider before taking this decision? Whether it needs to be developed in-house or we need to go out and looking for a partner? It, it's no one good answer. Every organization is unique and they have to figure out uh, their hybrid model on its own by actually trying different things, right? I think so. Yeah, it's very difficult to predict. Um, you know, now it's easier, uh, I think, because uh, there is a more experience that you, we can see, uh, you know, you can observe uh, various uh, vendors, uh, they have their own uh, record and you can speak with their previous customers. So it's much easier. But when it was all starting, it was very difficult to figure out. Uh, uh, what to expect really and therefore it was a very risky undertaking and also it was very costly now it's much cheaper to to get uh, quite sophisticated services but at the beginning it would require for investment in millions of dollars so now it's the cost of uh, this uh, quite important uh, and advanced uh, solutions is, is going down Absolutely. But before coming to how to change, uh, you know, every organization have to answer this question that when they need to change, you know, one of the one of the themes that we keep on coming across is that there are there are mutual fund organ microfinance organizations who are very, we, we are very robust, good business models. But with time, they're just surviving now. And, you know, and the reason for that is that they're not able to adapt to the changing times. They're not, they're not able to leverage the technology. What is your advice to them? Uh, when do an organization realize that you know now we need to put in more budgets into technology? And once they, what, how the realization comes and when one should realize that now it's enough is enough. We need to, you know, put more money there. More we need to divert our attention there. That's a very good question. Uh, you know, everybody speak about that. You know, we even had this term, um, you know, fintech or, you know, use technology or die, you know, this type of uh, expression uh, in our sector. 
fintech or die. And there was a seminar I remember uh, with that headline. Uh, but in reality, if you look at our market, majority of our traditional customers are still cash-based. They still prefer to come to the branch or call the loan officer uh, or be visited by the sort of sales team and, you know, uh, take a loan in cash and repay it every month. I mean, repayment is changing. Now they're using cash kiosks uh, uh, rather than only cash, but, but it's still very much cash-based. So that's, a, that's another problem, actually. Companies are busy in building their business and expanding their portfolios. Uh, they see that it works. <laughs> they are not necessarily looking ahead, you know, but obviously everybody feels that there is a time when customers will require uh, a better service. I mean, interestingly, our customers don't ask for that. You know, that's, that's interesting. They don't ask for, for new things. They're happy with uh, what we've got. And in, in the overall service provision, the element of relationship, of trust, uh, is more important than, than the technological part of it. So this is when it comes to, you know, traditional microfinance customers, entrepreneurs, farmers. Uh, but obviously this is not going to last long, and we all know that. We also know that uh, if customers don't develop themselves, they're not going to be successful in their markets. And therefore now the uh, important uh, direction is that we not only work on digitalizing ourselves, but also we are helping customers to digitalize. And it, that has been accelerated with COVID. So if you have a microfinance customer who is uh, happy with what she or he's got, you don't need to expect that they will, you know, create new jobs, expand their business, export some products. Uh, they'll probably, you know, remain the, the same level or may even have difficulties in the future. So that's why we start putting together services which would help uh, some of our you know, enthusiastic customers to, to, as we call, propel their businesses to the next stage of development. And technology is an important part of that. It's not only technology, it's not only finance, uh, it's also very much about the mindset, training, consultation, coaching, uh, but all these elements are important ingredients for, for economic impact. So we call this type of uh, service, uh, high-impact service. Uh, generally, microfinance is an, is an impactful activity. So we measure our social, economic, uh, environmental impact, and, and, and we, we have an evidence that what we do is, posit is positive for our customers. But it's, uh, I wouldn't call it high-impact. High-impact is when we see enterprises growing, jobs created, uh, investment is growing, and uh, uh, when we see the multiplier effect. And for that, technology is obviously crucial. Uh, therefore, I think uh, it will happen. Uh, those who manage that transformation will, uh, will survive and develop. Um, also, technology helps such organizations uh, uh, to enter new markets, right? Um, for example, Crystal has a very good example. We've uh, introduced point-of-sale lending several years ago, where we are the pioneers in that in that uh, domain. So today, Crystal's uh, maybe third, definitely a quarter of the business is our installment loans. We have a very big network of merchants across the country. 
Uh, and now we started providing point of sale lending to e-commerce platforms. Uh, and it's been used also in a very different context for agriculture when it comes to uh, input supply financing, right? So that little innovation which we which we managed well and which succeeded, uh, and that was very much also the outcome of the IFAD funded project. Remember, we, we spoke about uh, some time ago. And so that has helped us to double our institution. So in terms of customers, we have many more customers uh, uh, using installment loan than, uh, than traditional microfinance users. Um, so therefore, using any sort of technology will, will help organizations to diversify, to introduce themselves to new customers, and obviously you know, become more stable and profitable. Sure, sure. That's a very interesting piece. You know, it is it is very difficult to change something that is working for you. It is very uh, difficult uh, to introduce something new to your already happy set of customers. But then we, when you actually introduce new things, uh, you actually realize that, you know, you can go by 100 for by, by two times, maybe not by 30, 40 percent. And that realization comes after some time only. Absolutely. Absolutely. So therefore, you know, the uh, you know, uh, leadership of the company should not uh, wait until the problem becomes obvious. It's very difficult, you know, it's very difficult to uh, balance short-term and long-term uh, interests. Um, but those people who are in charge of uh, leading the company and governing the company are responsible to understand the technological environment. Uh, they should understand the changing in customers' attitudes and uh, demands. Um, and obviously competitive pressures, you know, it will be too late if you lose your customers to, uh, to new entrants or to larger banks who manage to, uh, uh, you know, to transform. Hmm. Uh, that's why I think uh, this is a big problem. Uh, I, I, I'm very lucky in Crystal, although we had some time, you know, lost in learning, but now I, we feel we're very well positioned to to not only follow the market but also to be the leaders uh, it took time for us to go through the you know difficult time of uh, understanding of you know trying uh, but now i think uh, we have a, a management team uh, we have a much greater awareness at the board level and the vision uh, on uh, when and how to uh, continue this important process which we call digitalization digital transformation mm -hmm. you know many times Archel, we keep on talking to uh, many leaders and the theme that came out from there is that you know these leaders the visionaries and the boards of the organization they usually are very experienced people but their bent of mind is uh, you know that they have to follow the book the regulator and usually regulators are late towards responding towards the technology changes and you know these these organizations they keep on waiting for the regulation to change to actually change their processes to automate their processes and by the time regulation changes which pushes them for change it's too late so uh, it's important to actually realize that now is the time to change and you know when you are when your customers are happy that is the best time to change that is what i have seen uh, but uh, as you said uh, tell us uh, uh, you know uh, how how this, these visionaries uh, uh, you know, can change the culture within the organization because, uh, you know, change has to be, it comes from within. What kind of questions they need to ask from the team uh, to understand that where they need to change? What should change first? 
Um, this is a good question. Uh, you know, financial industry is uh, hyper-regulated, especially after the uh, international financial crisis. Uh, 2008, uh, regulators became a, a hugely important part of, uh, uh, of the financial industry. So you can't really do anything without uh, understanding that regulators are all right or will be all right with that. Therefore, I think, uh, you know, uh, boards and management uh, is so much dependent on regulator sentiment. Um, and in Georgia, we had quite a risk averse regulator. Uh, I remember when uh, several years ago they introduced the um, retail lending um, sort of standards, sort of uh, rules which help to avoid over indebtedness. This is a big topic in many markets, and every market uh, sooner or later will go through this very difficult reform. So the, that time regulator uh, practically stopped any automated decision making when it comes to credit decisions. Uh, and everything should be done by physical visits or, you know, uh, affordability check should be done uh, in, in, a, in a sort of uh, old-fashioned way. Uh, that was regulator's uh, point. So it essentially stopped any innovation in this area. Uh, but with COVID, uh, I think regulator and everybody realized there is no, no way we can survive here. And uh, all of a sudden, we became incredibly advanced. So we, uh, we are seeing sort of, you know, online onboarding possible uh, and, and, you know, AI-based models now, you know, are increasingly introduced for certain decision-making when it comes to credit. So, uh, therefore, we cannot avoid that regulators' uh, attitude will be decisive. Uh, uh, so, we, we need to live with that. Uh, but, you know, the you know way to tackle it is just to engage and uh, speak and discuss and make sure that regulators are also on the same page. Uh, but questions asked uh, are, uh, I mean, the, in terms of your, if your question about what questions should be asked by the leadership, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, questions should be, uh, what is our customer's uh, requirements? Uh, is there is a better way for us to provide the service? Can we be more efficient? Uh, what are the competitive pressures? Uh, what we should expect? So these are the usual strategic questions, you know, and I think uh, they are not, uh, you know, a rocket science. And uh, if board asks them ahead of time, uh, if companies' corporate governance is strong enough to uh, to look at the future, uh, assess strategic risks, if a company has a, for example, five-year strategic plan, I think these questions tend to be answered in a correct and timely manner. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Th thanks for sharing that insight, Archil. Engage more with your regulator. You can engage with them. Most of uh, organizations, they keep sitting and waiting for the directions to come from the regulator. But yeah, if somebody is proactive, you can actually engage with them and make them understand your point of view and your customer's point of view as well. That's a very interesting insight. Uh, Arshil, my next question is that, you know, when, when an organization who was not very technical savvy, who is not very technical savvy, started going into this uh, trans digital transformation phase, uh, the process to actually acquire technology, there procurement process is such a long lengthy process that it takes sometimes them seven eight nine months ten months 
to actually implement a small thing. And by that time, in this, those 10 months, uh, the idea uh, actually that they implemented is already, you know, out of, uh, and they're already behind the market. So they have to change that after again, after 10 months and the cycle keeps on going. So uh, what what is your advice to these people that how they can actually go by the book also and can also reduce the procurement cycle and, you know, super fast the implementation also? You know, in, in large organizations, you are dealing with, um, you know, shareholder value and obviously there are rules which you cannot ignore. I mean, there are certain ways of, of how procurement should be done. And decisions take time, you know. Uh, bigger the contract value, more time is spent by management. And sometimes boards are involved to make the decisions. And when it comes to, for example, core banking system, this decision is uh, by, by the size or the financial part of it, but also importance and potential risk. That becomes a board, uh, board matter. And when boards are involved, then they have to do their job, you know, and they, they, they are not tend to be the fastest in decision making. That's, a, that's an advantage of fintech company, which like a couple of co-founders sitting with the team that can make strategic decisions in a matter of minutes or hours. That's not the way how corporations uh, operate, which we should understand. So this is a very natural type of problem. I think the, uh, there should be, if there is a greater trust, and there's a greater uh, knowledge and awareness among the uh, corporate board members, uh, and uh, you know, management is technologically savvy, then these decisions are much quicker because management provides very comfortable, um, transparent picture, a landscape of the solutions. Uh, so board can compare, uh, you know, in a, in a effective manner and see, uh, understand also how others use this technology. It always helps if we see that some other institutions are already successfully use technology, uh, and if it is also price-wise, you know, acceptable and competitive, then decisions tend to be fast. Um, it's no, it's never ideal in our experience. There are always, you know, cons and pros around any choice you make, but uh, but ultimately, you know, I think, uh, um, you know, it comes with experience. So speed comes with experience. At the same time, you know that, uh, you know, the cost of technology is going down, uh, software as a service models are emerging, so the, it's not becoming a major capital expenditure decision, but it becomes more like, a, you know, uh, almost operating cost decision. Plus, switching costs are getting uh, lower, so you are not going to, you know, lose millions if we have to change a vendor. Yeah. So modular system architecture. So you can, you know, replace small modules of your system in a matter of weeks rather than sort of make a, making a, a deep overhaul of the entire system, which may take a year or more. So this is a reality. Therefore, I'm very hopeful that the speed of decision making and implementation. This is uh, this is it from my side, uh, Arshel. So uh, I would I would like to thank you for sharing such uh, wonderful insights with our listeners. Talking to you was you know in a, in this candid manner was really insightful for all of us and for our listeners as well. Thank you for taking out time. And I'll ask my listeners, you know, uh, who don't know much about Crystal, to go out and check Crystal. I'll uh, I'll drop their link in the comments. 
you know, we all are influenced by how 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 M-Pesa did it and how Bcash did it. Crystal is one company that is changing the way microfinance works in the small country of Georgia. Go and check out their story. It was great talking to you, Achal. Thank you so much for taking out time today. Pleasure, Pleasure. Uh, Abhinavan. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Fintech Dialogue. In the coming weeks, we shall be in conversation with industry leaders who are changing the fintech landscape. So stay tuned.